We are in Zechariah chapter 11. Uh, We continue to look at a a tough passage. Um, It's going to have some familiar elements to you. You're going to hear about 30 pieces of silver and being thrown into the temple, and you're going to go, that reminds me of something. That, that, that sounds familiar, and yes, it is. It's a, uh, it's a parallel. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of, of Judas's betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, it was prophesied in the passage we're about to look at. Uh, I want you to remember, I need all of us to remember, God bids us come. Come, all ye pining, hungry He will not turn us away. He is a good shepherd. So let's open our Bibles to Zechariah 11. I'm going to begin in verse 7 and read through the end of the chapter. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock! May the sword strike his arm and his right eye, Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, these are hot words from your mouths. Uh, These are a sad description of corrupt leadership of your people, of uh, hearts that are corrupt uh, among your people. And Lord, we pray that you would show us Jesus um, Help us see His glory against this uh, dark background. And may we be drawn to His light. In His name we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. If you were here with us last week, uh, you you heard some verses that we concluded with. Uh, We're beginning with those. We're overlapping a little bit so we don't lose the context. Let me focus on verse 8. 
In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So Zechariah was called by God to become the shepherd of this flock that's doomed to slaughter. He's being basically uh, called to, to an exercise in futility. Um, he takes the reins of pastoral priestly leadership of the people. And he begins to clear house. He gets rid of these three false shepherds, but he realizes that the corruption hasn't just affected the leadership, it's actually affected the flock. And that's why he realizes that the flock became impatient um, with him and they also detested me. So he says, Zechariah says, I will not be your shepherd. And then he says, what's to die? Let it die. What's to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Um, So basically what's going on here, theologically speaking, this is an example from the Old Testament of what happens when God's people decide to have it their own way. Um, You know, you remember the old Burger King slogan. Uh, This this generation has Coke saying, you know, you do your thing. Or AT&T say, you know, you you do you. Um, Everybody's kind of wanting to do their own thing, and I get it. We're all individuals, and we have been uniquely made by God to express a unique personality and so on. But there's a point at which that goes too far. There's a point at which we decide, I'm going to do me, and I'm going to do exclusively me, regardless of what I was made to do or designed to do by a good creator who made me in his image and caused me to glorify him. And, and I get it, like this is one of those passages where you think, okay, this is the angry God of the Old Testament, writing his people off, um, and there's this false dichotomy, this false way of thinking about God of the Old Testament as being angry and the God of the New Testament. He's nice. I like him. Don't like the Old Testament God. Um, And it's really failing to miss the fact that God is one and he's loving and and he's jealous, genuinely jealous for the affection of his people. And when his people leave him and turn away to our own thing, independent of him, uh, that ruins a relationship. That's, that's how sin ruins our relationship with God. And so, I don't want you to get the impression that this is just the Old Testament, you know, angry God or whatever. Anytime, Old Testament or New Testament, anytime people turn their back on God and go their own way, God does something that's, that should strike us as a very fearful thing. He leaves us to our own devices. There's a point at which he says, you want you? You got you. You do your thing. And he withholds his restraining grace. He withholds his gifts. He withholds some of the things we take for granted that the world takes for granted. So for instance, let me read to you, remind you, some of you from Romans chapter 1. Paul is addressing those who, who have a knowledge of God. We all do. We're all made in his image. You can't not know that there's a God. And, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then Paul lists three, uh, threefold echo of, of this you know, result of what happens when people deliberately turn their back on God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
Verse 26 of Romans chapter 1, he basically says something very similar. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. A third time in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's a fearful thing when God removes His restraining grace. It's, it, it should scare us to think that there could come a point when God says, fine, you do you. And so as we come to uh, the, the episode of Zechariah and the silver and the temple and the potter and so on, um, we have to keep this in mind that God's leaders, God's people, they'd all said, uh, we're going to do our own thing. Zechariah is charged with this sort of exercise in futility to try to restrain this. And he says, I'm going to be your shepherd, but I'm going to basically let you uh, know God's judgment. Uh, and, and so in verse 12, Zechariah says to them, to the, the leaders um, who would be sort of hiring him, so to speak, he says, if it seems good to you, give me my wages as a priest, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was pricing them. That's a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of, uh, of an ironic statement. Why? Why would Zechariah be uh, sort of sneering at the fact that there was 30 pieces of silver? Um, well, a lot of your study Bibles will have this note, or you can just even get a simple Bible dictionary, and they'll tell you that 30 pieces of silver is a, a specific amount that's significant in the Old Testament because Exodus tells us that that, that was the price uh, that you're to reimburse uh, the owner of a slave if your ox gouges or um, gores that slave to death. If that slave dies because it's your fault, your negligence or whatever, you give the owner of that slave 30 pieces of silver. That's the price of a slave. That's the, 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 the economics of slavery. And so Zechariah is being regarded as no more than, worth no more than a slave. And he takes that money and he throws it into the house of the Lord to the potter. And then he breaks the second of the staffs, you know, symbolizing this breaking of the covenant that God has with his people. So this is the, you know, um, irony of the situation. Zechariah is the good shepherd. He's the faithful one, but they're treating him as worthless. The worthless shepherds are the ones who are in charge, and they've got all the money, and they've got all the power. And so Zechariah, in this um, act of judgment, throws the money back in, into the temple. They've, God's leaders have rejected God's leadership through his appointed prophet. Um, this reminds us of another, of another 30 pieces of silver, right? Judas's 30 pieces of silver. I want to read to you from Matthew's gospel, uh, a few verses from chapter 26, a few verses from chapter 27. I want you to see the parallels in these two accounts. Uh, so, so listen up to Matthew 26. Then one of the 12, his name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So just to pause right there, you need to know, if you're new uh, to the Bible or, or new to the church, um, Judas was one of the insiders. He was one of the 12 disciples. Maybe you've heard of him before, um, and, uh, and you, you sort of know that he's not a good guy. Uh, even though he started off as one of the, the, the inner circle to Jesus, uh, we know more about him later on in the Gospels. We learn some things about him. He's the one who betrays Jesus. 
And he asks for a price. What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. They paid Judas the price of a slave for Jesus. They didn't regard Jesus as worth anything more than a slave. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. And then in chapter 27, verse 3, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, something really interesting happens. This is the same man who had agreed to betray Jesus, treated him like that with not anything worth more than a slave, goes to him leading a mob of, uh, of soldiers and kisses Jesus. That's the sign. It's the friend, sign of a friend, and Judas is using it to betray Jesus. But when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? Keep in mind, these are the chief priests, right? He comes back to the chief priests and the elders and their response is, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Uh, There's an image on the front of your bulletin, um, a painting I've never seen before, and I thought it was was very arresting to me. Uh, The the color and the uh, composition of Judas. Um, And this is the moment that you can... Uh, I want you to see a, a better image in color. Uh, I don't know if there's a way to dim these lights. So you might see it better. Uh, but there's a few things to point out in this picture that I think helps us see what Matthew's describing, um, that there's this moment when, Jesus, when Judas changes his mind about what he's done, about his betrayal. It's the moment when he knows that Jesus is condemned. In fact, in the upper right-hand corner, you can see the crucifixion taking place. In the bottom left-hand corner, you can see the 30 pieces of silver and the money bag uh, on the ground uh, like, like Judas doesn't even want to touch it, like it's a horcrux. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. He hasn't decided to throw it into the temple yet, but he's, he's sitting here in agony trying to figure out, what do I do? I have, I've sinned. And he's got his hand on his head. Um, he's holding what looks like you know, an ice pack for his headache. Um, just a little gallows humor. It's okay. <laughs> and there's the, the artist, um, a Spanish artist from the 19th century, uh, does something brilliant with the light. I mean, Judas is almost entirely shrouded in shadow, but there's some points of light on him. There's light breaking through. There's something happening. He's seeing something real. He's seeing that he's sinned. He's seeing that an innocent man has died, is going to his death in his place. And so Judas is a complex figure uh, in the Gospels. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we know some other things about him from um, the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, just to be clear about the complexity of Judas's character, uh, in the Gospel of John, there's this episode where a woman anoints Jesus' feet with really, really expensive perfume, like Chanel number no. 5, um, costly perfume. And Judas, you know, in his... Uh, in his reaction, says, hey, how come, how come we're wasting this, this precious um, um, uh, perfume? 
It could be sold and given to the poor. And John, who's actually one of the inner three among the twelve, who knows Judas's character, makes this note. He, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. That was the mercy fund, right? And Judas is dipping into the mercy fund for his own, his own needs. He's a thief. And in Jesus' prayer, Becky was um, talking to us about the importance of unity um, in that women's conference, in that same prayer in John 17, Jesus prays regarding Judas and says about his ministry to the disciples, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He's referencing Judas. The son of destruction, the one who the prophets were speaking about. Prophets like Zechariah, prophets like Jeremiah, who predicted the field that would be bought with those 30 pieces of silver. The priests, you know, pulling the, the, the hem of their robes in, the skirts of their robe, you know, acting all pure and holy, say, oh, we can't touch that because it's blood money. So we'll go buy a field and we'll have the foreigners buried there with it. That's where Judas hung himself. So Judas is complex. He's, he's playing a part in the unfolding redemption of God's people through the betrayal and the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Judas has a part to play in that. Let me make two things abundantly clear so there's no confusion at all. Judas was a free and morally responsible agent in that. He was free to choose. He was free to decide his fate. He was free to determine his own course. He was morally responsible and morally culpable for his actions. Judas cannot stand before God's throne and say, the devil made me do it. Nor can Judas stand before God's throne and say, you made me do this. I want to make that abundantly clear. Judas was a free, responsible, moral, morally responsible and morally culpable agent. And yet, Jesus could still pray that all that was happening, that the Scripture would be fulfilled. That nonetheless, God at the same time is still sovereignly working through the betrayal of Judas to accomplish these purposes, the purposes that the prophets foresaw, that Jesus embraced, and that would accomplish salvation for all who trust in Jesus. Both are true. Judas is responsible. God is sovereign. And yet, mysteriously, they both stand side by side as true. Now, let me talk about Judas's suicide for a second um, this is something that we need to address. Uh, in the past six weeks, I guess it's been maybe, maybe less than that, uh, you know, our, our country at least has witnessed two very prominent uh, figures who have taken their own lives, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Um, Kathy and Lady and I, as you know, um, 
we were in, uh, in Atlanta for General Assembly, and one of the excursions that uh, Kathy and Lydia took in the afternoon was to visit CNN. It was like a, a block away from where we were staying. And they do tours there. But as you, as you go by uh, Olympic Park, Centennial Park, um, and, um, and, and on, on your way to the CNN Center, there's an enormous billboard, bigger than the back wall here, of uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, and his um, Parts Unknown, I think this is the name of his cooking show, um, where he travels to all these parts unknown on the globe and experiencing ethnic food and ethnic culture, and he's got some commentary on that. And, you know, he is just larger than life, looming over everybody who's walking by. And then just days prior, days prior, he had taken his own life. And I don't know how many uh, of, of you uh, even here this morning, um, ladies, your handbag or maybe a dress or your phone case or whatever has the little, you know, Kate Spade on it. Why, why do people take their own lives? Why... Why um, do, uh, among the statistics that the Centers for Disease Control maintain, they've been maintaining these records since 1950, why is it that among 15 to 24-year-old women, young women and women, why is it that since 1950 the, number, the percentage uh, suicide rate has doubled among women ages 15 to 24? Why is it that since 1950, the, the suicide rate for men, uh, men and young men ages 15 to 24, why has their rate tripled? Why do people take their own lives? The reason why people take their own lives is the same reason why Judas took his own life. Because when Judas went to the priests, and when he said, I've sinned, do you, know what the, do you remember what the priest said? I read it to you in Matthew 27, or in Matthew 26. The priests look at Judas, and they ask him, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And the reason why people kill themselves is because they don't know any, what else to do with their despair, uh, with their guilt or with their shame or whatever uh, it is that, that is pressing in on them, that blinds them uh, to what's real, so much so that they end up taking their own lives because people are telling them, see to it yourself. That's what they believe people are telling them. And they find only one solution that they take up on themselves. So um, suicide is a sin. Um, it's the sin of murder. It's actually self-murder. Uh, but the church in the past has not been terribly helpful when it comes to suicide. The church is even, uh, at one point in church history, uh, churches would not grant Christian burials uh, to people who had taken their own lives. Imagining it or portraying it as sort of this unforgivable sin. It is not an unforgivable sin. It is no more an unforgivable sin than, than murder would be an unforgivable sin. But we know murder's forgivable. There are murderers in the Bible who we know are in heaven. David was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. They're in heaven. So whether you're murdering somebody else or whether you're murdering yourself, there's still grace for murderers. We'll talk about the real distinction, what, what is the real issue uh, in just a second. But Judas is an example to us 
of somebody who's so blinded uh, by his despair, by his guilt, or by his shame that he, and, and he doesn't have any pastoral direction other than what is that to us? Deal with it yourself. And so, you know, maybe it was his shame that led him to take his life. He just can't face anybody, so the only way that I'm going to deal with this myself is I'm just going to stop living. Maybe it was his effort to deal with his guilt. You know, I am guilty of an innocent man's blood, so a life for a life. I am guilty. He was innocent. I'm going to take my own life. You know, maybe that was, you know, going on with his despair. He has no hope, so he can't live another day. He's just going to take his own life. Whatever it is, it's this effort to deal with it himself. And that is why when you get to verse 17, God is so upset with these false shepherds who, you know, to Judas, tell him, deal with it yourself. To Israel's people are selling the sheep like, uh, like slaughter animals instead of caring for them. And so in verse 17, God says, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Jeremiah is a great echo of what Zechariah is saying. Jeremiah 23 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. And you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And you go, whoa. God says he will deal with the false shepherds. God says he will deal with shepherds who say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Having uh, a worthless shepherd is sort of like having a worthless surgeon. Um, Imagine going to a surgeon Your oncologist has told you, you have cancer, you have a tumor, it's malignant, you've got to get that out. And then you go, you have the follow-up appointment with the surgeon, and the surgeon says, yep, that looks pretty bad. See to it yourself. I I came in from the porch this past um, week, I don't know if it was Wednesday or Thursday, and I'm holding it, I come back into the house, and I've got an X-Acto knife in my left hand. And Michael looks at me, he's sitting in the chair, he's like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, well, all right, so I needed, I needed the sunlight. I needed good light, and I had, um, you know, my glasses on because my eyes aren't as good. And I was trying to dig a splinter out of the tip of my finger with an X-Acto knife. For fun, right? Uh, no. So, for real, tweezers were just not cutting it. Um, you know how tweezers just, they, the tip just doesn't grab like it needs to. And I couldn't. It was a tiny, skinny, little splinter in the tip of your finger where there's all kinds of nerve endings. And any time I was trying to click on my mouse all during the week, I was just like, oh my gosh, this splinter's killing me. I couldn't suck it out. I couldn't tweeze it out. So finally, all right, exacto time. It's got a nice, sharp tip on it. And I could just dig and, and, you know, get it underneath the splinter, pry it out, and then sucked it out, and there it was, you know, that little beauty. How you feeling about now? <laughs> you feeling as about, about how I, you're feeling my pain, you're feeling my nausea uh, sitting on the porch trying to dig that splinter out. Remember uh, in Master and Commander, uh, Far Side of the World, Russell Crowe, um, and the ship's surgeon gets accidentally shot 
He's trying to shoot, somebody's shooting an albatross of all things. You're never supposed to shoot the albatross. And he takes aim at the albatross and boom, and, and uh, he wasn't looking and he shot the ship's surgeon in the abdomen. Um, who's going to operate on the surgeon? The surgeon is going to operate on the surgeon. And there's this lovely scene of somebody holding up a mirror to the surgeon's abdomen, and he's got to first get the bullet out, the lead ball out. He takes the lead ball out, and then because it went through the fabric of his shirt, there's a patch of fabric that's stuck in his abdomen. If they don't get that out, it'll get infected, and he'll die not from a gunshot wound, he'll die from infection. And so he's got to get that fabric out, and oh, finally. I mean, but you just watch this guy operate on himself. Don't go to a worthless surgeon who tells you, what is that to me? See to it yourself. You need to go to a good surgeon who's going to say, yeah, we can take care of that. You're in good hands. And I will get rid of your cancer. Or, spiritually speaking, if we go to a good shepherd, you want to go to somebody who's going to say, yeah, we can deal with your guilt. We can deal with your despair. We can deal with your shame. What if Judas had gone to a good shepherd? What if Judas had gone to somebody who says, you know what? You did something unbelievably terrible. But there's hope. It's actually hope in the one who you condemned. So God would say, woe to the worthless shepherds. Woe to worthless storytellers who make fashionable and popular the final exit. Woe to worthless healers who renege on their Hippocratic oath when they write prescriptions for assisted suicide. And woe to worthless pastors whose people come Sunday after Sunday or weekday after weekday, whether it's in the pulpit, whether it's in the pastor's study, whether it's over coffee, whether it's over lunch. Woe to worthless shepherds, worthless pastors who put people's guilt back on themselves with the gospel of good works. Try harder. Work harder. Be good. Don't worry. And leave people in their despair, leave people in their guilt, and leave people in their shame without pointing to the good shepherd. Without reminding people of the one who Jeremiah continues after saying woe to the worthless shepherds, God says through Jeremiah, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall there be any missing, declares the Lord. And this is pointing to Jesus, right? Who comes in John chapter 10 and says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy the worthless shepherds. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. He died for, to take away our despair, to give us hope. He died to take away our guilt, to give us his goodness. He died to take away our shame, to give us sinlessness in his eyes. And he did that. In, and remember who was crucified beside him? Two, two thieves, right? Two robbers. And uh, one just continued to the bitter end, heaping insults on Jesus. The other robber repented. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. We are assured by Jesus' own words that that thief is in heaven today and will be forever. Not because of any good work that thief did, simply because that thief repented. He turned from his sin and he turned, he turned 90 degrees from his sin and another 90 degrees, 180 total, to Jesus. The other thief, all we know is that he just, we didn't hear about any repentance. We heard about more insults. I think it's very, very likely that that thief is suffering for his sin forever in hell. But there weren't just two thieves involved in Jesus' crucifixion. There was a third thief, right? Judas. He was a thief. We're told that in John, in, uh, John 7. He was a thief too. And there, uh, there's no shortage of debate about the destiny of Judas. Among the conservative um, scholars and pastors and writers, you know, almost every one of them uh, says without a doubt uh, Judas uh, was, was lost. He was the son of destruction, therefore he's in hell. Uh, and uh, all of the liberal scholars and liberal pastors and authors and so on, they're all saying, oh, without a doubt, no question about it, Judas is in heaven because there is no such thing as hell. Um, so anyway, they don't have any other option. Um, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a liberal, um, but I'm not sure that I can just buy hook, line, and sinker this assurance among conser most conservatives that absolutely Judas is in hell. I get it, son of destruction, I, but I don't know if that was his physical destruction or if that was all his, his spiritual destruction too. It's probably that, but I just, I'm not prepared to say for sure that I know, that, just to sound more conservative than somebody else. Um, here's, what I, here's what I'm wrestling with. Judas changed his mind. It's not exactly the same word as repentance. It's, it's a, it's, there's a semantic difference, but there's a lot of overlap too. To repent, you do have to change your mind. He goes and he confesses his sin. He goes to the priest and he's looking for some kind of direction. What do I do? I, and, and don't get me wrong, Judas was a despicable disciple. Some of you know what betrayal feels like. Some of you know what it feels like to be betrayed by a spouse. Some of you know what it feels like to be betrayed by a coworker. Some of you know what it feels like to be betrayed by a friend. But you know what? You're still sitting here. Jesus was betrayed by a friend, and he died as a result. Judas was a despicable disciple, but that's not what would have kept him out of heaven. The only thing that would have kept Judas out of heaven was a lack of repentance. 
The only thing that sends people to hell is a lack of repentance. The only thing that gets people into heaven is repenting of our sins, turning to Jesus, asking for his forgiveness. That's what gets us into heaven. And so um, I'm not going to go on about Judas any more than to say there's just sort of some evidence on either side. Don't listen to this sermon wondering, well, what about Judas's repentance? Sort of like you listen to a sermon and you go, I sure hope so-and-so is listening. You know, what about your repentance? How is your repentance? None of us repents perfectly. Get over that. You're never going to repent perfectly. But your repentance can be earnest. It can be genuine. You can turn from your sin. You can turn to Jesus, and He will give you hope in exchange for your despair. He will give you the sentence not guilty in exchange for your guilt. He will give you the assurance that He loves you and accepts you in exchange for your shame. I was at the funeral for Bob Moody, the director of the Stonewall Brigade Band. Uh, Michael and I went. Hundreds of people there. Beautiful um, uh, country church and the graveside. Uh, it was a beautiful day, and it was just one of those places where you're like, all right, I, I want my funeral like that, you know. We're all going to die if Jesus delays. So let's not have any conversations at your funeral, at my funeral, or any of our funerals with people wondering, gee, I wonder if his repentance was real. I wonder if she really, truly trusted in Jesus. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Demonstrate your repentance. Let there be no question that you are following Jesus. Trusting him, loving him, repenting and turning to him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your invitation to come. Come, all ye pining, hungry, despairing, guilty, shameful, poor. And that's every single one of us. And we come. We come in the name of Jesus, believing that he died for our sins, believing that he rose again for our justification, believing that our, our eternity is finalized because of His conquering our death. And Lord, we pray that You would so fill us with Your Spirit that the evidence of our repentance would be visible in our humility, in our love, in our joy, in our, um, our hope, in our gentleness, in our self-control, in our generosity, in our justice in our conversation, in our attitudes, in our actions. Lord, help us grow in grace. May the world see what repentance looks like in your people. In Jesus' name.